Hello, and welcome to this installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next episode this season, celebrating recent work by Andreas Hoysen, is drawn from a panel brought together on February 15, 2023, to discuss his recently published book, Memory Art in the Contemporary World, Confronting Violence in the Global South. Andreas Hoysen is the Villard Professor Emeritus of German and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, where he served as founding director of the Center for Comparative Literature and Society. His many publications include After the Great Divide, Present Pasts, William Kentridge, Nalini Malani, The Shadow Play as Medium of Memory, and Miniature Metropolis, Literature in an Age of Photography and Film. He still pursues his long-standing interest in the politics of memory, now in relation to human rights discourse, and is working on a book on contemporary visual artists from beyond the Northern Transatlantic and their dual investment in memories of state violence and memories of modernism. Let's take a listen to Andreas introducing his new book. I am part of the first post-fascist generation in Germany. So memory and forgetting have been central to my life and published work for decades. The rise of the field of memory studies since the 1980s led me to observe and write about traveling Holocaust tropes and images in Latin America after the end of the dictatorships in Argentina and Chile, in post-apartheid South Africa, and in contemporary India. Dora Salcedo, who had read some of my earlier work on Holocaust memory in Germany, approached me for a catalog essay for one of her shows. So did Nalini Milani and Vivan Sundaram, both of whom I first met at a conference of artists, critics, and curators convened by Gita Kapoor in Mumbai in the late 1990s. Guillermo Kvitka and Marcelo Brodsky I met in those same years in Buenos Aires, where I was giving lectures about German memory culture at the Art Foundation POA. I was deeply touched by William Kentridge's drawings for projection, Felix in Exile, which I watched multiple times, almost obsessively, at the Documenta 10 in Kassel in 1997. And I began to understand Kentridge's work better after I had met him in Johannesburg during Oqui Envisor's second Joburg Biennial later that same year. But slowly my interest in how Holocaust memory functioned in other traumatic histories of violence gave way to the issue of transnational comparison across the global South. The works of these artists first encountered each other and their viewers in third world biennials at the time of a growing international human rights movement and emerging cross-continental networks of truth and reconciliation commissions, memory museums, and commemorative projects around the world. By now, of course, the work of these artists has become quite successful, but they had just emerged into public consciousness when I first encountered their work and began to write about it. Clearly, their work challenged me to think beyond German history, and it was specifically their use of Holocaust tropes and images that helped me overcome hesitations to write about art from parts of the world so far from my own expertise. Now, each chapter of my book discusses a few specific works by two artists from vastly different geographic areas and historical contexts. These constellations are organized according to themes, spaces of violence, shadow plays, or traveling trauma tropes, or they focus on the spaces of installation, the gallery, the museum, urban space. Bringing these works into proximity with each other 
reveals aesthetic and political affinities as these artists negotiate their respective traumatic experiences by making imaginative use of received artistic legacies and practices. The South to South axis, and Oliver had mentioned that already, of my juxtapositions is crossed by a South to North axis manifest in the ways these artists have all drawn on the archive of Northern modernisms and postmodernisms, appropriating or counter-appropriating artistic strategies, techniques, and forms, and re-articulating them from their post-colonial perspectives. The third dimension, of course, is the North to South axis, present in my approach, coming out of an expanded reading of critical theory, especially the aesthetic theory of Theodor Adorno. Now, the book joins two dimensions of memory shared by my artists. Memory of national eruptions of recent state violence articulated from within. And the artists I write about all work from their home countries rather than from some Western art metropolis. And secondly, memory of a broad and diverse archive of the Western arts from the 20th century. Expressionism and Soviet revolutionary art in Kentridge, avant-garde dance theater in Kwitka, minimalist sculpture in Salcedo and Sundaram, public urban installations in Salcedo and Kentridge, radical post-Brechtian theater in Malani. Much of this art relies heavily on installation and ephemeral performances while working out of older, sometimes obsolete mediums of art. By creating constellations of specific works across borders and boundaries, I have suggested points of affinity and contact among these artists from India, Latin America, and South Africa. Such affinities evoke a semblance of solidarity between geographically separated bodies of traumatic histories. The work becomes an important aspect of memory culture at large, one that aims at new forms of cohabitation and cosmopolitanism across cultural and geographic divides. Now, I have no illusions about the power of art being able to move things substantively in the world. The demand never again, nunca mas, already shipwrecked in the 1990s in Bosnia and Rwanda. But I do have some trust in the power of art to create spaces of reflection and empathy, to question and challenge reified forms of official and sanctioned memory, to create shared meaning in deeply divided societies, to strengthen demands for accountability, to sabotage organized forgetting. And last but not least, to resist the neo-fascist memory revisionism that has recently arisen in many parts of the world. Such purposes can be pursued either by political art activism, a kind of direct, crisp, and cutting intervention in the public sphere that often resembles slapstick and draws on avant-garde techniques of estrangement or detournement, or by the temporarily very different mode of what Doris Salcedo has called acts of memory, installations that require slow reception, active immersion and contemplation, both intellectual and sensual, in works and installations exhibited in gallery, museum, or in open urban space. Two different forms of artistic intervention then, one quick, fugitive, and geared to immediate political effect, the other slow, engendering long-term effects, lingering engagement and enlightenment, nourished by effect and emotion, created through complex aesthetic forms. And this, of course, the latter one is the subject of my book. Again, that was Andreas Hoysen. Next, we'll hear from Emily Apter, Professor of Comparative Literature and French at New York University. 
Her areas of research are translation theory, language philosophy, political theory, critical theory, continental philosophy, history, and theory of comparative literature, psychoanalysis, and political fiction. At the end of her comments, Emily asks Andreas a series of questions which you'll hear him answer. I should note that, at the live event, we encountered some technical issues with our microphone, so we asked Andreas to re-record his answers via Zoom. We're especially grateful to Andreas for taking the time to re-record his answers. Let's listen. For many years now, Andreas Wiesen has been engaged in a project of aesthetic mapping, producing cartographies of world historical political shifts, geographies of mass culture and aesthetic movements. The last chapter of his groundbreaking 1986 book, After the Great Divide, titled Mapping the Postmodern, offered a preview, one could say, of the mapping venture in 2022's Memory Art in the Contemporary World. It begins with a story about a visit to the 1982 Documenta in Kassel. As Andreas approaches the exhibit with his five-year-old son, Daniel, he confronts a work of social sculpture by Joseph Boyce, consisting of, quote, thousands of huge basalt blocks arranged in a triangle formation, the smallest angle of which pointed at a newly planted tree, end of quote. Boyce, he reminds us, was concerned with the death of trees as a result of acid rain and had issued a, quote, appeal to the citizens of Kassel, a dismal provincial city rebuilt in concrete after the heavy bombings of the last Great War, to plant a tree with each of his 7,000 planting stones, end of quote. Daniel loves the rocks, climbing all over them and asking quizzically, is this art? Continuing on, father and son encounter pieces by Jamie Lee Byers, Kunelis and Meritz, all of it engaged with brute material surfaces that invite tactile response. Daniel reaches out and touches, but immediately, predictably, the guard yells, Nicht berühren, das ist Kunst. Hearing these admonishments, Andrea suddenly gets what's at stake in postmodernism, light bulb moment, a movement saturated by readings of Benjamin's erratic theory of the work of art in a post-secular age of medial reproducibility. Quote, here it was, that old notion of art, no touching, no trespassing. The museum is temple, the artist is prophet, the work is relic and cult object, the halo restored. To puncture this halo, postmodern art can no longer rely on ironic distance and self-critique. It must subject its own heuristics to historical critique. And this entails a complex mapping process that challenges the presuppositions linking modernism and the avant-garde to the mindset of modernization, end of quote. So the mapping in After the Great Divide, I think tends to be historical and theory-driven rather than geographic or transnational. Units of historicity are broken down into decades with emphasis on the pivot in the 70s from avant-gardism to the neoconservative post-structuralist culturally eclecticist 80s. Interestingly, though, the book concludes with intimations of a different kind of mapping to come, one that will be oriented to the non-West and no longer voiced by Euro critics who, quote, speak with the confidence of standing at the cutting edge of time and with an unquestioned sense of entitlement to speak for others. Flash forward to the 2020s and we discover Andreas well on track towards this project of a new critical mapping along North-South and South-South axes. Chapters on memory art in the contemporary world span South Africa, Latin America, and the Asian subcontinent. 
They model an aesthetic cartography in critical tension with the post-war landscape of German Erinnerungskultur and Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, which is the working through the past, which was so indelibly marked by the historian's dispute in the mid-1980s. And as you recall, at this time, Holocaust-centered memory work vied with the German suffering war narratives in a sea of mnemonic pluralism in which the idea was to give alternative voices and views and actors equal due. Needless to say, this led to relativizing narratives, false moral equivalences, noxious forms of both sidesism of the kind we see in contemporary political reporting today, and the making equal of specious lookalikes. It's just this kind of mnemonic pluralism that Andrea seeks to avoid, even though it's not always easy when undertaking comparative work. Andreas courts the risks that come with North-South comparatism when he juxtaposed the Holocaust and the myriad violences of the global South. But he's careful to recognize the singularity of each traumatic event and avoids treating the Holocaust as the first order catastrophe against which all others are scaled. He insists on the aesthetic autonomy of lived experience, particular to each socially situated work of memory art, and refuses to homogenize processes of what Rosalind Deutsch calls the not forgetting. This is her new book, Not Forgetting Contemporary Art and the Interrogation of Mastery, which is a wonderful pendant to this book. Like Deutsch, Andreas brings out at every turn the complex ways in which memorial culture can be compromised with memory art becoming a kind of forgetting machine of inconvenient truth a place where real memory goes to die rather than an effective way of really reckoning with the past. While memory art in the contemporary world doesn't weigh in on the political pragmatics of liability and remuneration, it does, I think, question the critical assumptions around reparability in its analysis of select works of art. So here are my questions for Andreas. How has memory art anchored your approach to comparatism? art, literature, media, and enable different geographies of mapping? How has your idea of comparatism or approach to it changed as you've expanded the geopolitical frame of what is mapped or mappable? Not sure how to answer, but I tend to see more continuity than change. The continuity is in the mapping itself, which you describe so well, Emily, an approach from a distance combined with close readings from proximity to and even intimacy with cultural objects. What holds it all together is my lifelong fascination with modernism slash avant-gardism, which is itself grounded in specific generational experiences. In the book, you reference Adorno's strong construct of aesthetic identity. I wonder if you could unpack this argument further, since it lies, I think, at the core of the book. At the heart of the book is a critique of identity production and the ways in which aesthetic experience subverts it. I don't think I'd want to construct an aesthetics of non-identity, however. Not sure how to best say this, but Adorno's notion of non-identity brings to my mind Musil's Mann ohne Eigenschaften, The Man Without Qualities, where Musil writes that every human subject has nine identities, a radical version of intersectionality, if you like. And the ninth identity is indeed non-identity, linked to a sense of open possibility, what Musil called Möglichkeitssinn. This points to how identity and non-identity are always entangled with each other, just as the translatable is with the untranslatable. Would you situate your book 
in the larger contemporary groundswell of repair work, reparativity theory, and trauma study. Repair begins with the acknowledgement of others' pain and suffering. The way art achieves this much through aesthetic experience is perhaps most obvious in Dora Salcedo, whose artistic practice is grounded in intense forms of co-witnessing. I did not foreground repair in the book for one simple reason. I remain skeptical of the broader implied promises of repair, both at the individual and at the social political levels. I'm skeptical that full repair is ever possible, even if reparations and institutions were made. The terrors and injustices of the past cannot be undone, but they must be remembered. And my book is about such remembrance. But mind you, it is remembrance for the sake of the future. In the sense of Adorno saying, in his typical mode of rhetorical exaggeration, and I quote, all art bears witness that the world should be other than it is. This is certainly true for the works discussed in my book. Next, we'll hear from Claudia Brieger and Noam Elcott. Claudia is department chair and Villard Professor of German and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. Her research focuses on 20th and 21st century culture with emphases on film and theater, literary media and cultural theory, and the intersections of gender, sexuality, and race. Noam writes, teaches, and advises students in the history of modern art and media at Columbia University with an emphasis on early 20th century art, photography, and film. Here is Claudia and Noam, followed once again by Andreas Hoysen. Andreas, you so importantly underline all these different axes, south, south, north, south, at least in, in two ways or multiple directions, in spelling out the travels of modernist forms. But in doing so, you actually mostly work, and I think for very good reasons, with a different terminology of appropriation and counter-appropriation. Against the backdrop of recent political debates on appropriation, I am interested in the affordances and the limits of that term. Foregrounding the violence inherent in plan Plundering the riches of cultural sedimentations is entirely intuitive when it comes to the northern modernist appropriation of global art. And in many respects, it also makes sense to foreground a more antagonistic dimension with regard to the counter-appropriation of modernist tropes by artists from the global south. At the same time, speaking of appropriation also, if you will, splits apart the palimpsestic formations of transcontinental culture into opposing blocks. So the question maybe also for all of us would be where and when do we want to and need to speak of appropriation and where and when might we instead foreground the palimpsestic nature of modernism and contemporary experimental art as part of the transcultural memory processes that are unfolding for your beautiful closing words for an unsettled decolonizing world. Claudia, you raise the important question of appropriation. Of course, I know that the term cultural appropriation, and for many good reasons, carries an extremely negative charge these days. But does it have to? Two reasons why I speak in the book of appropriation in reverse. One is simply the desire to emphasize these artists' agency and to keep their work from being described condescendingly as merely derivative, as happened so often. The second, however, is my belief that appropriation is part and parcel of any cross-cultural transnational exchange. I wrote my dissertation on theories of translation as appropriation in the work of the Jena Romantics. Appropriation here aimed at expanding literary horizons, creating new possibilities for the native language to make cross-language communication possible and to enable the somewhat later Goethean concept of Weltliteratur. So I would ask, 
isn't there multidirectionality of appropriation as well? And if so, to speak of appropriation in reverse may not be so very different any longer from talking about multidirectional palimpsests. But I do take your gentle critique to heart, Claudia. 24 years ago, in the spring of 1999, I took a bridge lecture course on the culture of memory with Professor Andreas Hussen. It was and remains among the formative intellectual, aesthetic, and ethical experiences of my life. A descendant of Holocaust survivors who first encountered Germany and Europe alongside my Krefeld-born grandmother, I arrived to class immersed in milieu de mémoire. But it was Andreas who provided me with a theoretical armature to critically engage and constructively reimagine the possibilities of memory cultures in the past, present, and future. Andreas's teaching accompanied me to Germany and to graduate school and back to Colombia, where as a young professor in 2012, I was fortunate enough to accompany him to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to see William Kentrich's The Refusal of Time, with which, of course, he concludes his stunning book. In his afterword, Andreas writes that this book has taken shape over several decades. I like to think I've been an eager student and occasional interlocutor during most of those decades. And yet every chapter of this penetrating and lustrous volume held new insights, introduced me to new works and artists and historical traumas, and above all, posed new questions that cut straight to the most pressing issues of our moment. Memory art in the contemporary world is not only the title of Andreas's book, it is the condition in which art most powerfully touches the lives of individuals, communities, and societies in the present. Not only the events, monuments, counter-monuments, exhibits, artworks, and museums across the global south so eloquently addressed by Andreas, but also national debates here in the U.S., such as on Civil War monuments and what will replace them, or more locally still in New York City, where memory art filled the last Whitney Biennial, the New Museum's Theaster Gates retrospective, and numerous other established and improvised venues. Among Andreas's key insights is that the rise of memory art reverses a seemingly timeless condition where monumental art often marked the death of living memory. Memory art infuses contemporary art practice with life. What's more, Andreas's book is a masterclass in how to write global contemporary art history, a practice that has eluded and frustrated almost all art historians. By constellating pairs of artists around shared mediums, sites, or predicaments, shadow plays and installations, urban spaces and museums, disappearances and ubiquitous violence, memory art in the contemporary world models a mode of global art history that remains true to particular histories and sites, yet weaves a story that elucidates and connects disparate junctures in the global South and in relation to the North. If time allowed, I would love to delve further into the individual case studies and the rich theoretical introduction to the book, but time is short. So I'll end with one or maybe two questions. Simply put, though I fear there's nothing simple about the question, and indeed it may be unanswerable. My question is, what is the role of aesthetic memory in a book on memory art? A few concrete models. For Abby Warburg, Patos Formel connected centuries of art to the art of antiquity through the language of gestures and passions. His unfinished Memosim Atlas was a visual training manual for these tropes as taught by the works themselves. In short, an aesthetic memory. Closer to home, Rosalind Krauss has defined the medium as, quote, a set of conventions derived from but not identical with 
the material conditions of a given technical support, conventions out of which to develop a form of expressiveness that can be both projective and mnemonic. Now, neither Warburg nor Krauss theorized memory art per se. Instead, they each, and in very different ways, identified aesthetic memory as constitutive of art practices, contemporary and historical. The lingua franca you correctly identify for the global artists you study is that of Western modernism. You explicitly name and elucidate the connections to expressionism, Soviet and Weimar avant-garde, minimalism and installation art. And it seems that minimalism and installation art loom especially large. There is an irony here, of which you are keenly aware, namely that Western modernisms were often practiced and polemicized in opposition to memory, in opposition to history, in opposition to traditions, Marinetti and futurism being you know, the locus classicus of avant-garde animus to all history and memory. The revival of what these Western modernisms in the name of memory art in the global South is a scrumptious and unexpected twist, and I'd love to hear your further reflections on it. But this is just a prelude to my central question, namely, where are the aesthetic memories from the global South itself? A few examples. Hear me now, the astonishing pottery exhibition that just closed at the Met, juxtaposed the 19th century work of enslaved African-American potters of old Edgefield, South Carolina, most famously Dave the Potter, with those of contemporary artists like the Astor Gates, Simone Lee, and others working in the same materials, above all clay, experimenting with the same aesthetic and functional forms, jugs and other vessels, and solidifying an aesthetic memory that can carry the sorrows and triumphs of African and African-American life. Another example, Cecilia Vicuña, Chilean artist with major exhibitions in the Turbine Hall, London, the Guggenheim, New York, and the most recent Venice Biennale. Her practices range across poetry, painting, and installation. Above all, site-specific kipu, not installations, K-N-O-T, and one-time performances of what she calls living kipu. The kipu was an ancient Inca device for recording information consisting of variously colored threads knotted in different ways, a mnemonic technology in the most literal sense, unfortunately as yet undeciphered. Even as Vicuña described her first kipu as, quote, the kipu that remembers nothing, subsequent installations deploy the aesthetic memory of kipu and the aesthetic practice of kipu to construct memory artworks in relation to a range of recent traumas. A final example. Drawing on your own striking analysis of Nalini Milani's In Search of Vanished Blood, in addition to the many Western artistic allusions, might Milani also be channeling the millennia-long tradition of shadow puppetry in India, one in which women have played an outsized role? As I understand it, one of the epic ancient Indian texts Milani draws on, the Mahabharata, constitutes an essential part of the repertoire of shadow theater traditions in India and throughout Southeast Asia, such that her revolutionary work is also a continuation of an aesthetic tradition that spans millennia with which women were especially involved. In other words, how might the aesthetic memory of Indian shadow plays inflect her memory art in the present? Noam reminds us that aesthetic memory has always been constitutive of art making. True enough, but differential specificities in the perceptions and regimes of time and space can and must be analyzed in each case to avoid the conclusion that there's nothing new under the sun. 
which of course is not what you would argue, Noam, anyway. Our situation coming after modernism, when modernism slash avant-gardism has itself become tradition, means that this archive can be repurposed in contemporary aesthetic practices, and that is the topic of my book, but it can also be plundered by the culture industry and by commodity aesthetics, Louis Vuitton's fine arts, as they're called. Now, I must respond to Norm's question. Where in the book are the aesthetic memories from the global south? An all too easy answer would be the task I set myself to is to relate two clusters of memory to each other, not three. Memories of recent and current historical violence and memories of modernism. Thinking about the question, though, reminds me that my artists vary greatly in the ways they incorporate local aesthetic memories. The clearest case is that of Nalini Milani, whose work I do relate in the book to late 19th century Caligat painting in India, to South Asian marionette shadow play, and to reverse painting. You mentioned her use of the Indian epic Mahabharata. And yes, the major female figure of that epic, Draupadi, figures prominently in Malani's work together with Cassandra, Medea, and others. At the other end of the scale is Dora Salcedo, whose minimalist practice does not seem to be shadowed at all by Latin American or, for that matter, Colombian aesthetic memories. Kentridge, with his use of charcoal drawing, widely used in African art, would be somewhere in the middle. Such presence of aesthetic memories from the Global South could certainly be explored in more detail. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Andreas Hoysen and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Andreas Hoysen. The title of his new book is Memory Art in the Contemporary World, Confronting Violence in the Global South. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.